Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today is Indicative Votes Day in the House of Commons. I think we have no idea what those votes are going to indicate, but we will try and make sense of what they actually mean. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. got Helen Thompson with us, Chris Bickerton. Uh, it's a delight to have, for the first time, Catherine Barnard. Cambridge is blessed in having a deep bench of professors of European or EU law. <laughs> and Catherine is one of those. She's been a very prominent public voice throughout the Brexit debate, including a couple of weeks ago on Question Time, BBC's Question Time, which kind of has a reputation now as the bear pit of Brexit, where people go and suddenly discover that this nation is way more divided even than we realised. Was it like that? It was. You're given a warm-up question before you go on air, and the warm-up question was about knife crime and should people be who've got the carry knives be essentially locked up for a very long period of time? To which the answer was unanimously no, because lots of them were kids. And the audience was pretty quiet. And then suddenly the cameras go on. The first question was about Brexit. The entire programme was about Brexit. And suddenly the audience absolutely took off. There were two very vociferous Brexiteurs sitting slap bang in the middle of the audience, absolutely in the eye line of Fiona Bruce. And they were loud and proud of their views. And this just caused the rest of the audience to go completely wild. And so it really was quite an experience. And on the panel, the politicians were at it, hammer and tongs. But I was there to try and provide some sort of. Objective. I thought you were very good, by the way. Well, you that's were, very kind of you to you, say. I thought you were very was, calm. Under <laughs> I suddenly realised that. I, I realised that maybe years of serving on various university committees maybe has taught me something. <laughs> so we're going to try and talk about things as usual that we don't know about yet. But people listening to this will know something about them because today is Wednesday and. This evening, there's going to be a very complex process by which members of parliament will get to say for or against a whole series of possible Brexit scenarios. We don't even yet know which ones the speaker is going to allow onto the ballot paper. It's also true this afternoon that Theresa May is meeting the uh, 1922 committee and she may be going to indicate something about her own future. So we're going to be trying to make sense of this in a a space where we're not completely certain where it's heading. But some things are clear, including really important questions about what an indicative vote might mean and how it might bind and who it would bind and how it would shape future negotiations. And I thought maybe we could start with a question. Helen's raised this a few times, and this is partly for my own benefit. I'm never completely clear about the relationship between the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration. So say, let's take as a hypothetical a kind of common market 2.0 scenario, let's call it a softer Brexit, is the preferred choice of members of parliament under this system. Does that require the withdrawal agreement to be renegotiated? Or is that something that could be added on after the withdrawal agreement is passed as a reconfiguration of the political declaration? Does the political declaration at least potentially can it be separated out from withdrawal agreement or not? 
The two meaningful votes that have been discussed so far have been on the basis of the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration. There is some talk now that if there's a third meaningful vote, you separate the two out. But there's a bigger problem, and that is that indicative votes say comes out in favour of common market 2.0, so stay in the single market and the customs union. That's for the future. And the political declaration is about the future, whereas the withdrawal agreement is essentially wrapping up the past. Is there anything in the withdrawal agreement that precludes common market 2.0? There's an even more fundamental problem than that. The Article 50, which is the legal basis for the withdrawal agreement, does not allow discussions about the future. Article 50 talks about account being taken of the future arrangements, which is why they've done it as a separate political declaration. But the legal competence, that's the legal power for the EU to negotiate the withdrawal agreement, is only about wrapping up the past. And anything about the future is done under entirely separate legal provisions. For your information, it's Article 207 on free trade agreements and 217 on association agreements. You're glad you've got a lawyer in. Um, and, and the fact is, you can't do the future under the provisions on the past. And that's a fundamental problem that hasn't been sorted out. I think this has been clear from the start. Most of the things that the MPs leaving the ERG have been objecting to are about the political declaration. And they're objecting to it because they want the future more predetermined than the political declaration sets that out to be. And pretty much. The amendment that Nick Bowles has put, which is the Common Market 2.0, kind of gives direct instructions that follow from passing, or if that indicative vote were translated into action, that would determine what the future would be. Well, they can't do that. That is something that's subject to negotiation with the EU in the future, as Catherine has said. But even saying, we'll leave that pie in the sky bit out of it, they've still got to pass the withdrawal agreement. I mean, this has always been the case, and this is why this language, I know I've banged on about this a lot, of the deal is so unhelpful and so misleading, because there isn't a deal, there's a withdrawal agreement and a political declaration. So when Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, says whatever the Labour position is, but the implication is always that the way this would work is that the Commons would embrace a position which would require a new government which would be required to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement in order to bind that in with a new political declaration. Is that simply nonsense? Well, the only way we could do that is to revoke Article 50 and start again. Revoke it? Yeah. Not extend it? We haven't got time because the time deadlines are so tight through either the 12th of April, which is the key date if the meaningful vote doesn't go through, or the 22nd of May if the meaningful vote does go through. And so the only way you'll get to the point of Jeremy Corbyn's position is if there's a general election and then he comes back to try and renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. We shouldn't rule out. It's also the EU's made it very clear now that it's too late, the withdrawal agreement is what it is, and it's not subject to renegotiation in the way that Corbyn suggests. Formally speaking, I think it's right to separate the withdrawal agreement from the political declaration. The withdrawal agreement is the result of these protracted negotiations around difficult issues around money, around the EU citizens' rights and around Northern Ireland. It's meant to settle those things. But the separation of the two has been a long-standing position that the EU has held, which has been resisted for a long time on the UK side, which is how do you know what you can negotiate in terms of the withdrawal agreement if you have no idea where you're actually wanting to go? Now, the UK government simply lost that battle a long time ago. The EU's position was there is a sequencing process. You can't talk about the future until you've sorted out the questions from the past. 
I think it was a shame that it lost that battle, but it simply has lost it. And so that's why we're in a situation where the future arrangements are, as Catherine said, precluded from discussion until a package has gone through the House of Commons. So what then is the significance of these indicative votes? Because the other thing that strikes me about them is so much of this is about a question of whether the Commons has confidence in a government, I mean, a fundamental question of confidence, and that that government will then have the power, would be empowered by the Commons to negotiate some future arrangement. It doesn't really matter what is indicated today. The fundamental question will be what confidence at some point in the future does the legislature have in some future executive. And nothing that's said today will decide that. I think that's right. I think there's a further problem, which is that let's say the indicative votes favour Common Market 2.0. What does that mean? So it's not legally binding. The only way it could become legally binding at domestic level is through having an Act of Parliament that enshrines that. But then the further problem is the whole point about parliamentary sovereignty is what the Parliament of today decides can be reversed by the Parliament of tomorrow. So come a general election or come a change of leadership in the Conservative Party, new Prime Minister, it may be that he or she would propose uh, some sort of change to that piece of legislation. So the only way it can become legally binding and not changeable is to be put into a treaty And the treaty is the withdrawal agreement, that's the only one on the table, which is by definition about the past. And so, and even if you tried to put a codicil on the withdrawal agreement, the EU probably wouldn't agree to that because it's about the future and the Article 50 is about the past. I think it's worse than that, though, because I think think that what, when you read what is in the amendment that Nick Bowles has um, drafted, he is basically trying to say that you vote for this and you will determine what the next government will do at some point in the future, regardless of whether there's a general election, regardless of the fact that the legislature can't be the government, a party would then have to stand for election, assuming at some point, which there will be, there will be a general election. Both parties would have to be committed to doing this. And then what about the voters who don't want to vote for a party that's committed to common market too? What are they supposed to do? I mean, I think that the meaningful vote in practice turned out to be something that was actually constitutionally very problematic in terms of ratification of um, treaties. And I think where we are now is just another level of of constitutional madness. I mean, it cannot be the case that Parliament can tell voters what they are allowed to support in a future general election in the manifesto of a political party. And that is what we are at the position where Nick Bowles is trying to get. So if if I was just to ask the blunt question, it's almost like a tactical question. Say you were Nick Bowles or someone who this was your preferred outcome, this was the destination you wanted to get to, Common Market 2.0. Should you therefore support the withdrawal agreement when it comes back for a third vote or not? You've got to. You've got to, yeah. There's, 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 no, there's no alternative because... You shouldn't try and collapse the government first. Well, you can we'll come the, on to the risk of no deal because, of course, that does risk no deal. You can take risk the risk no of collapsing deal. the government, but then you have to think, accept that the most likely consequence of doing so would be no deal. And then there's a problem, there's a legal problem, because if you collapse the government, you end up in a no-deal scenario unless somehow you can persuade the EU to really extend the whole process and defer the end date of Article 50 yet again. And so then what do you do? How on earth are you going to get to the point of renegotiating a withdrawal agreement They won't do it. And if you're really interested about the future, the future is dependent on the EU saying, well, first of all, you've got to settle settle your past liabilities. I take all of those points, but I think we have to go back once again to the fact that this 
problem was baked into accepting the fact that you separate discussions around future relations from leaving the European Union. It's inevitable that, and it's absolutely right, I think, that people want to know where the country is going in terms of its relations with the EU. And the idea that you can somehow artificially separate thoughts about the future from thoughts about the past and the present is very, very firmly stated by the European Union, but it creates this kind of build-up of pressure within the UK in terms of debate. People want to know, and parliamentarians, I think, are trying to give some expression to the possibilities of what that future relationship would look like under the constraints of Article 50, and that is very difficult. Now, I think it's very legitimate for them to do that. What's also very useful about these indicative votes is that it tells us something about what parliamentarians are thinking and how that corresponds to what the wider public might think. And if there is a big gap, then it Essentially, the, the separation of the withdrawal agreement from the political declaration and temporally separating it is a classical EU manoeuvre of kicking the can down the road. It defers very difficult questions, which will be the subject of very difficult negotiations, to just a later stage. Now, I can understand why they did that, but I think we've also come to the end of the line, and it seems natural that some of these ideas are bubbling up about future relations. We can't wish them away, even if they might be you know, substantially or sort of formally unlikely to, to affect things. We are faced with May's deal or no deal, but it's natural that we're trying to think about what the future relationship will be. I mean, I agree with that, but we are where we are. But, and I think it's also wrong to suggest that actually it's a past future because the withdrawal agreement does contain the future as well because of the backstop. So actually the EU's position on this is is not actually consistent. It's the problem with the British government that it it got caught and boxed into accepting this model, but it can't be undone now. I mean, the British government, if it wanted to deal with this differently, should have won that battle about um, sequencing and didn't. And so the choices are in front of us are what they are. There's another part of the problem here, just the basic political one that I take Helen's point, we shouldn't call it a deal, but it's not just thought of as a deal, it's thought of as Theresa May's deal. And there is this huge kind of loss of faith in her and in her ability to take politics into the future. Her time is, whatever else we think, her time is running out. And that there's a desire for a continuity that transcends the passing of the withdrawal agreement and takes us into the negotiations of the issues around the political declaration. The thought that there needs to be some faith that there is con- continuity in government or continuity of purpose across that divide. And there is no faith in that at the moment. No. And on the EU side, neither. They, yeah. Because they, they don't believe that even if they gave the UK some commitment to Common Market 2.0, that it, the UK would deliver on it because there could be a change of prime minister, change of government, and it's all for the birds. So, so in a way, I, I'm not sure if this makes sense, but there's almost like a desire that when we pass this thing, we want to pass it under conditions that we have some idea in internal British political terms what the future looks like, what future government. So even if it's the same withdrawal agreement, it still makes a difference whether it's passed under this government or under some future government that then is responsible for the negotiations. And that's the big barrier here. People do not want to pass it when it's associated with Theresa May. But there's another way out of that, which is just to pass it and then have a general election. I think the two things that Theresa May has always been able to offer is, is her own resignation and saying that there would be an agreed commitment to dissolve the parliament once the withdrawal agreement was passed so that the government that then was responsible for the future negotiations would have a new legitimacy. 
I think I agree with you. That makes perfect sense. The withdrawal agreement is passed. The UK, formally speaking, leaves the European Union and is then beginning a new stage of negotiations about what its relationship should be. In order to have the sort of continuity that you were talking about, David, you would have to have a government elected on the basis of a manifesto where it commits itself to taking those negotiations in a particular direction. However, you know, we are where we are, but we also are with the parties that we have. Now, they have shown, you know, evidence of enormous divisions, enormous diversity of opinions. The idea that a general election would magic up some sort of vision for a post-Brexit relationship with the EU that could be carried through in this stable and enduring way in negotiations, I don't really see it. I think what we'd get would be... Again, a lot of debate, discussion, fudging, divisions. The government that eventually would be elected would then negotiate in a way where we'd be back to where we are right now. But I now. still think the difference would be it would be a new parliament. And there would at least be the possibility of thinking two, three years ahead with a single parliament in place. We now, I think, all know that between where we are now and the settling of some of these fundamental questions, there will also need to be a new parliament. And that is the big break here. That's the thing that's so hard to to get over. And it's kind of part of the reason why we're stuck. Let's talk about no deal, because that's part of this too. It depends where you get your news, what you read. The Times a couple of days ago gave the chance of no deal as zero out of five, which seems to me to be too low. Zero is a very low number. (laughs) Uh, Even 0.5. I know people, including experienced politicians, who think that we are still massively underrating in this kind of conventional wisdom the chance of no deal because, again, there's there's a barrier between the commons taking control and expressing a view and things actually happening. So we need an explanation of how Parliament prevents no deal if it can't agree on anything else. And there is also, you know, it's related to what we're talking about now, the fact that Theresa May, one of the things she has made clear is that in this parliament, she feels she has manifesto commitments. And the complication is that her manifesto commitments are commitments about the future relationship, not the withdrawal agreement. But nonetheless, if the Commons seeks to impose on her things that she thinks goes against her manifesto commitments, you've got a kind of impasse. And the 11th of April is not that far away. So how how does the Commons say we get that impasse? She doesn't step down. The, the government just limps on. How does the Commons assert its refusal to countenance no deal? I'm, I'm not sure, we, even if it can, whether it would, because I think Theresa May's strategy has always been to try and keep her party behind her and to get support from the, the stronger sceptics for her deal. Maybe she'll manage in the end, maybe she won't. Labour's position has always been to not commit itself to Brexit, but to edge it over the line without looking as if it's doing it, but not taking the initiative. I don't think that's going to change. And so as no deal gets closer, will you see some rupture in that basic strategy on both sides? I can't see it. And I think we'd rumble close and close towards it. I think still voting down her deal seems to me to... Not inevitably, but to really bring us towards the high possibility of no deal. Because I can't see the so you don't parliament think getting itself together. If, if the third vote doesn't get... I, I, now I don't know what to say about anything, because Helen's made me think I can't say her deal or whatever. Anyway, whatever that thing is that we used to call her deal, if it doesn't get it over the line, you don't think in that space, say it comes back on Friday and it falls again. And then we so on Friday we've got what? 12, 13 days. You don't think in those 13 days there is a mechanism by which 
Parliament can refuse to allow no deal. I think there is, which is is that the Parliament has already shown that it can take control of the parliamentary timetable for days. That is what the consequence of the amendment that passed. And then on one of those days, Parliament could vote to revoke Article 50. So it would have to be revocation. Whether it would is a whole other matter. So revoking Article 50 is a big step on from simply preventing no deal. But it's the only thing that the UK Parliament can do unilaterally. Everything else depends on the EU. So at that point, if I could say, I think then, presumably, we get a fourth vote. Because revoking Article 50 is a really... I mean, it's the nuclear option for some members of Parliament. So we shouldn't rule out the possibility of a fourth vote on... If what we used to call her deal. There, there is a legal problem too. I'm sorry to keep coming back to that. But if you look at the, what the council agreement was last week, the European Council agreement says they've got to be a meaningful vote this current week. Yeah. Now, it may be because when they were drafting it, they were drafting it last week and she told them that she was going to try and bring a meaningful vote this week. But that is actually the language that's written in the text of the European Council decision. There's got to be a meaningful vote this week, i.e. the week we're in at the moment. Now, to what extent they'll actually hang on to that very technical point. But th- that's what one of the arguments why she's going to have to have the meaningful vote tomorrow or Friday. Do you think members of parliament understand, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer because none of us are members of parliament, that if they wish to prevent no deal and they are not willing to pass Theresa May's deal, they have to revoke Article 50? I think they if that's true that seems to me I mean I found that very helpful <laughs> I didn't know that 10 minutes ago if that's true that should focus minds but if you put yourself in the position of the team around the leadership of the Labour Party I think under no circumstances would they support revoking article 50 and they consider now this may come across you know as very cynical but I think their position over time has suggested this they would consider no deal as a failure of the conservative government and they would tar this as an absolute Tory disaster. And again, rather than revoke Article 50. You think they would do that because the alternative would be to abstain on the fourth round of the vote? How many times you can bring her deal is another question. You're saying that no deal is still, we should see it as a real live possibility that on the 11th, 12th, Britain leaves the EU without a deal. Given Parliament's record so far, yes, I think so. But, you know, both leaders have been thinking in terms of their parties enormously. That's May's approach is to keep her party together and the Labour Party's been thinking about itself. So, what, again, what about the other possibility, which is in those 12, 13 days, you get a vote of no confidence and, and that vote passes. If votes of no confidence pass, Parliament ha- declares no confidence in the government. So that must be possible as no deal approaches. And so then somebody would have to go back to the EU to say our problem is this and we need more time and that means a significant extension to article so a further request and a significant extension now this is where the technique becomes technical because as you know in the EU Withdrawal Act which when you say as you know I think you should be careful about using that (laughs) phrase especially when looking at me look at Helen when you say that the the EU Withdrawal Act which is the act that took so much parliamentary time in the course of last calendar year set in stone the exit date of the 29th of March now that has already had to be changed and then it's a statutory instrument which is being voted on today but unusually for a statutory instrument it's an affirmative resolution which means it's got to be positively agreed by both houses of parliament and so going forward if we were to ask for a further extension there would be need to be yet a further statutory instrument 
to change the date again. And of course, we'd need the unanimous agreement of the EU 27. And they would say, and there's already talk that they might extend it to the end of 2020. And then we're in the realm of having European Parliament elections. And the EU doesn't seem to be budging on that. Interestingly, the Commission and the Parliament have always taken a hard line on this, that the UK would have to participate in European Parliament elections. But the Council has always been more ambiguous. And actually, I think there is some wriggle room in trying to find another way around without having to have the full-blown parliamentary elections. But that is not the EU's official line now. Just to go back to where you started, there's also that question, who is it? So the government loses a vote of confidence. Under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, I believe there's a two-week window in which an attempt can be made to form a government that would have the competence of the Commons, otherwise you would go to an election. Well, we don't have two weeks. Yeah. Even during those two weeks, Theresa May remains Prime Minister. Yeah. So presumably it would be her. She would have to go, and she's a dutiful person. I mean, I can imagine the circumstances in which she says, look, it's no longer me, I'm simply a cipher at this point. I am Prime Minister. I've lost control of this. I mean, I can imagine that. It would be very painful for her, but... She's shown she can absorb... (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it might be a release that she could go to Brussels and say, it's not about me anymore. Well, I was going to say, the other thing is, is though, I think there are clear divisions within the EU member states as to what to do now. I think you could see this in terms of the discussions at the Council, and clearly Merkel and Macron are not on the same page about this. And that, reportedly anyway, that Merkel got quite angry with Macron at the last um, European Council. Merkel seems pretty clear that she does not want a disorderly Brexit, that she thinks that the EU's interest lies in orderly Brexit. Macron seems more willing to say Brexit one way or the other. It's not clear that he thinks that it would be a good thing for the European Union for the UK to stay in for the next however long it would take to resolve this, particularly as well as when you look at this from the EU's point of view and you're looking at the difficulties that the UK Parliament has of dealing with EU issues, why on earth would you want this as part of your ongoing politics? They've got to balance that though against Merkel's view about which which I think is bound up with the, the economic risks that are involved of a disorderly Brexit, particularly given the state of the German economy. So I think trying to second guess what the EU will do in the face of a second request for an extension is quite difficult. And that's got to factor in then to the ways in which the actors in Westminster make their decisions. And is it partly because the European Parliament is likely to become a more important body anyway in the future and Merkel and Macron may have a very different view about the risks of allowing the UK to participate and allowing Brexit, as it were, to contaminate European parliamentary elections. I mean, at the basic level, doesn't Macron have more at stake in the forthcoming European parliamentary elections? And he wants to get this settled before then. Is that part of what's going on here? I think it's part of what's going on. But I think that there's there's deeper questions. I mean, let's just take the question of treaties. Now, the EU's got into considerable difficulty about treaties. It hasn't had one since um, Lisbon. And so it's had to do things to deal with the Eurozone crisis on the basis of intergovernmental treaties or simply just ignoring treaty authority whatsoever, like with the European um, Central Bank. So if you're going to think about the UK staying in the European Union... With or lots, sort of until the end of 2020 or, or whatever. No, I was thinking beyond that. Oh, okay. So like actually opening up the possibility that... Oh, you think we, Macron doesn't want us in at all? I don't think Macron wants... Oh, I, I tell you to be saying he doesn't want us in for the next two years, just messing everything up. I don't think he wants either of those two things. He wants uh, us out. There's, there's a small matter of the EU budget which needs to yeah. be passed, and that requires unanimity. Yeah. And if we've got a different prime minister, 
who's a much harder Brexiteur, the answer is that they might just see it their business for the benefit of the yeah. domestic agenda to kick up rough and to yeah. show to show their real hardcore hard Brexiter credentials. Yeah, I agree in that entirely. But if you look more long term than that and you say, okay, are there people in the EU who think that there is a way of keeping the UK in the European Union via a second referendum or via revoking Article um, 50, then they've got to th- possibly, as Donald Tusk certainly seems to do from the things that he said, but then they've got to think, okay, well, what would the UK be like as a member? If we were to stay, are we going to revoke as well the, the 2011 European Union Act, which meant that there's a, a legal requirement to hold a referendum on any new treaty? Because if we're not going to do that, we're going to be an impediment yeah. to any future treaties in the European Union. So if, if that is Macron's position, it also makes no deal likelier, considerably likelier. As I say, though, you have to balance off Macron's position in this in relation to Merkel's position in this, because I think that what Merkel showed at the, Euro- the last European Council is that she is very nervous about disorderly Brexit. But I think Macron is also nervous about being identifiable as the one who makes no deal happen. Well, everyone's nervous about being that person. <laughs> yeah, but I think Macron I mean, the, is... The DUP, you know, presumably, also. We haven't even got onto them yet. Yeah, I think many people are sort of, you know, uh, sort of shying from taking responsibility for that event. But if you think of the EU27, Macron would be sort of willing to stand up for a number of positions. But if he gets singled out as being the one person who put his foot down in such a way that no deal happened, I mean, that's something that he has to balance, I think, with the obvious inconveniences of a continuing membership of the, the European Union by the UK permanently or just for, for a couple more years. You know, because it's going to hit France as well as Germany. This is not something that, you know, it would be easy for, for France to absorb. There lots of complications. He would then have to own that as being the person who made it happen. He would, I think, probably step back from that brink. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Do we have any sense of how we get from here to a new government? What's the likelier scenario? So we don't know what Theresa May is going to do or say, but it's very hard to imagine her now continuing as Prime Minister, say, into the next calendar year. And actually, it's quite hard to imagine her being Prime Minister by the Tory party conference, I think, or at least if she is, it'll be in order to hand over to someone else. There's been a lot of talk about an election. My position for a while has been, I think, an election has been underpriced as an outcome of this. I think it's now been correctly priced. People are talking about it. But there's also talk of the possibility that in this situation, this parliament could have confidence in another government, maybe the possibility of some government led by someone who's a softer Brexiteer. It's hard to see how it would happen. It would have to break party allegiances in various ways. I mean, is there any way you get to a new government without an election coming pretty soon, do you think? Well, could Corbyn be Prime Minister without a general election? That's one way of putting the question. It's pretty difficult to see how he can construct a a parliamentary majority, particularly given the the independent group and what Vince Cable has said about what the Liberal Democrats' position was on not supporting a no-confidence motion in the government, unless the, the Liberal Democrats are going to change their position 
again. I think in part the question about whether there would be a general election would depend on, let's just assume for the moment that, that the meaningful vote passes and the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration can then pass, is, is how it was done. So if it was done because the DUP backs down and you get a, a small Labour rebellion that compensates for the Tory Remainers, then I think it would be possible to see how the Conservatives could remain in power under a new Prime Minister. I think if you need significant Labour voters, so the DUP doesn't come on, you need significant Labour votes or Labour abstentions, then the price for that is going to be a general election. Can I throw something else into the mix? If um, the uh, withdrawal agreement to Theresa May's deal gets through on the meaningful vote, reliant on Labour leavers, DUP, and it's going to be close, whatever... That, of course, is only stage one. Stage two is it's then got to be converted into domestic law through the um, vehicle of the WAB, the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill. And, of course, that will be a normal bill. It's not yet been published, but it's got to go through the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And that will give an opportunity for those who are leavers to say, actually, we don't like it. And what's really striking to me, this withdrawal agreement, Theresa May's deal, 600 pages long. We've heard endlessly about the second 300 pages, the backstop. We've heard nothing about the first 300 pages. And the first 300 pages include, in Article 4, the notions of direct effect and supremacy, that the withdrawal agreement will be supreme over conflicting national law, and direct effect, which means they'll be enforceable in British courts. Now, these are the very things that the European Communities Act did, which were so proudly turned off by the EU Withdrawal Act. I know there's quite a lot of legislation here, but the long and the short of it is there's a lot of hostages to fortune in the first 300 pages of the Withdrawal Act that have not been ventilated at all. And if the government is so reliant on Labour votes to get the WAB through, the Withdrawal Implementation Bill, it puts Theresa May in a very vulnerable position. Now, I've heard the counter-argument, which is if the meaningful vote goes through, then the Commons and the Lords will wave the WAB through. But that suggests we're in normal times, and we're not. And this is why I think she's in such a vulnerable position. I think ultimately why you can see a general election being the way forward. And one possible path you might look at is to say, she says, I will go after the local elections in May if you vote for my withdrawal agreement to go through. So that will be my legacy. And then she goes after the local elections, which will be bad news for both parties, because I think there's quite an appetite amongst the electorate just to punish politicians for being so inept as they see it. But then you'd have a Tory leadership contest over the summer and the new leader would be crowned at the Tory party conference in um, the autumn. But if that's the case, the EU's extension, if, if it happens this week, or maybe they give us a little bit of wriggle room, then takes us to, is it the 22nd of May? 22nd of May, yeah. And the local elections are when? Start of, start start of, of May. May. So it's still pretty complicated for the reasons you said. So she's not just a lame duck prime minister, she's the lamest duck prime minister of all time. Nonetheless, having to get this legislation through, that even if you say there's a sort of general understanding that it has to be way through, there are troublemakers abounding in British politics. And it's who can be confident of that? She's lost her authority. Those two months become really perilous. Plus, they're fighting local elections. And we know all Jeremy Corbyn wants to do is to be in Morecambe or Doncaster or whatever, yeah. for, you know, as he was for the, the march on Saturday. He's, his comfort zone is to campaign for elections. So he will take the opportunity of these two months to go back into campaigning mode. 
it's perilous. It is perilous, and th- and that's why there's lots of talk about Peel and the Corn Laws, because um, that's that's. <laughs> but what happened with the repeal of the Corn Laws was that he was reliant on opposition votes to get the repeal of the Corn Laws through, but he was sunk a month later to try and get any other legislation through by the very people who'd voted in favour of him getting the Corn Laws repealed, and Tories were out of office for a very long period after that. So just to go back, I just want to have one more go at this. There's a vote of no confidence, the government falls, maybe because people have lost confidence in it. Well, you know, we think of confidence votes as being tactical things, but maybe people will vote sincerely because the Commons has lost confidence in this government. Jeremy Corbyn makes an offer to become Prime Minister to pass the withdrawal agreement to embrace a kind of common market 2.0 and gets the support of enough Tories and then to call an election later in the year, gets the support of enough Tories just to to be the Prime Minister who is in office during that very tricky period. Is that at all conceivable? Or is the fact that it's Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, can you see Nick Bowles propping up a Corbyn government? No. There's no evidence yet at all that Jeremy Corbyn's in favour, or the Labour leadership's in favour of Common Market 2.0. And the second thing is that Nick Bowles is in a in a position that's not like other Conservative MPs because he's not going to be standing again. So I don't think that, although he's the person obviously be directly behind Common Market 2.0, at least in its parliamentary form, that he's a very good indicator of what Conservative MPs are likely to do. Because anybody who would, a Conservative MP who was willing to support a Jeremy Corbyn um, government... Wouldn't not, be a Conservative MP for long. He's not going to be a Conservative MP in the next time that there's a general uh, election. And I think the other problem from that scenario, though, is is that... Is, is I should that say, the, I don't believe in that scenario. <laughs> I was just airing it. You know, there's very considerable hostility in the Labour Party amongst the Remainers to Common Market 2.0. And there's good reasons for that, because it is a particularly, I think, incoherent position to take, even if you leave aside the fact that what it says on the customs union is very muddled. It basically says is we will take the issues that have caused this much difficulty for the UK's membership, including the single market, or starting in some sense with the single market, then we'll repudiate one of the strongest economic arguments that people who support Brexit think that there is for leaving the European Union, which is an independent trade policy, and we'll say that isn't possible. It's very difficult to tell a positive story about this, other than sort of presenting it as a domestic political compromise. It just completely ignores what the EU is as a site of authority and political power, what the single market means, what being in a customs union means, as if somehow because it's supposedly middle ground, that that means that it's sustainable. It wouldn't be politically sustainable at all. I agree with that. And I think that what all of this shows, bizarrely, is that actually any form of compromise doesn't work because any form of compromise is either too little for Remainers and too much for Leavers. So you then have a deeply unstable politics because everyone is deeply unhappy. And we see this, actually, it's embodied in the withdrawal agreement or the debates about the withdrawal agreement. In fact, it's not really about the withdrawal agreement, it's about what the withdrawal agreement symbolises, which is some sort of compromise. And there is no space for compromise. And in fact, what you increasingly see is that the only position that can be taken is either revoke Article 50 or leave with no deal. Because the middle ground, which is economically sensible, just doesn't work politically. I've always thought the thing to be said for Theresa May's deal is that everyone hates it. 
So were it to pass, it would be very hard to construct a narrative of betrayal. You know, those bastards did it to us because there are no bastards who did it to us because it was just her. I mean, in the end, I mean, so I do think it's the advantage that it's got that were it to sneak over the line, it actually makes it harder for either side to say that the other side got their way. That's something to be said. No, I for think it. there are three coherent positions. So I think that No Deal is coherent in its own terms. That the withdrawal agreement is coherent in its own terms, yeah. and Revoke is coherent in its own terms. Everything else is a muddle and pie in the sky. Okay, so it, and, and if those are, and I, th- I think. We believe that there will be one more go yeah. um, and Burko won't be able to block it. So something that has changed in the last maybe 24, 48 hours is hardline Tory Brexiteers were clear that they could only move if the DUP moved. But now quite a lot of them are moving while the DUP is still insisting that they won't move, which is going to ratchet up pressure on the DUP because on this issue of who's going to be fingered when this fails and maybe we end up with no deal or no Brexit, the DUP are looking more and more isolated. I mean, they haven't budged as far as I can tell at all. And yet, if we were to have a vote where it's clear that actually the DUP's refusal to move was the decisive factor, that would be a very uncomfortable position for them. And presumably, so something could change this week, which is, you know, and it must have been fun being the DUP. Everyone's waiting to see what you do. And now, oh, no, people are moving without you. Might they buckle? They're losing their maximum moment of leverage. Though, of course, remember, just remember the voting calculation. You know, they are the ones that hold the balance. You know, their 10 votes do make a difference. So that's good for them and it gives them leverage. It's bad for them because it leaves them isolated. If this this goes wrong, it could be those 10 votes. And then maybe it won't cause them problems with their electorate. I don't know, but it would cause them problems in the wider world. I think that's right. And I think also, remember, there's overwhelming support in Northern Ireland, which did vote Remain for the withdrawal agreement. And there's also deep concern in Northern Ireland about the impact of no deal and the tariff schedule. Now, I know tariff schedules are not things that really get people excited, but remember, with the tariff schedule that's being proposed for a no deal, goods coming from Ireland into the north get in without paying tariffs, unless they voluntarily want to, which you can't really see happening. But goods going from Northern Ireland to the south will have to pay tariffs. And the tariffs on agricultural products, which is the main source of the economy apart from the public sector in Northern Ireland, are dramatically high because agricultural products, on average, 40 to 50%. And so this is a really big issue. And no deal for Northern Ireland would be very, very serious indeed. Yeah, I think that the DUP are in a strange position in a, in a number of, of ways because they've got very good reasons to fear having an election, not least any election in which they were blamed for no deal. But they've also got reasons to fear having an election that would lead to the Labour Party winning and Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister for fairly obvious reasons. I think we're beginning to see cracks in the DUP's position. So one of them, um, Sammy Wilson, I think, wrote an article basically suggesting that a long extension would be better and he was effectively slapped down by the leadership. Now, it's interesting that he was someone who is like one of their hardest Brexiteers, preferring the long extension to no deal for the reasons I think that you said, Catherine, of what a risk that is for them. So if they're not willing really to contemplate no deal... Um, and at the same time is that they, or at least some of them, have got some ideas about, OK, we'll try again with a longer extension. They then have to take responsibility once people like Jacob Rees-Mogg have come on board for what is likely then to be no Brexit. And I think for the long-term prospects of the Northern Irish Union with Great Britain being maintained, that is a really bad position for the DUP to be in. 
but they've only got about 48 hours to come to that conclusion probably Friday yeah um, I mean there is a drip drip effect I think around her deal that slowly slowly people sort of start to come around I mean I think slowly slowly 48 hours yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean that does have to speed up now so, um, <laughs> but uh, I think I mean I've said it before I think I, mean, I think we all have had a shared view that yeah however we have to face, I think, a, an absolutely realistic prospect, which is that it's not gone through twice over. It's a very fair chance that it won't go through again. And then we get no deal on your account. Then we get... No, see, I think... So if we have three options, withdrawal agreement is passed, or we have no deal, or we have revoke, you know, Article 50. I think if the withdrawal agreement doesn't pass, then we start to head, you know, towards no deal, which will then build up enormous pressure for revoking Article 50, which I think... I can't see that happening. I think it'd be more likely for some sort of pressure around, you know, a general election, the kind of things we've been talking about, a complete unravelling and an attempt to sort of... And then this last sort of gasp demand to to the European Union to extend in order to hold an election. That seems to me more likely than revoking Article 50. Revoking Article 50 would require a confident parliament, to be honest, and we don't have one. Last question, which is about Theresa May, so we don't know... And when people hear this, she may have made a statement today. We, we might update this if we get a chance. She may not. You never know with Theresa May. So on Saturday night, I just as we were going to bed, I told my poor long-suffering wife, because I was reading Tim Shipman on Twitter, oh, the coup is underway. Yeah. <laughs> the coup is underway. And she just gave me a look and just told me to shut up. And then I had to tell her in the morning, yeah, forget that. <laughs> uh, uh, so she survived the non-coup. She has been remarkably resilient. But does this tell us more about you know, she has a particular temperament and, and an extraordinary ability to absorb things that would have, I think, brought down other politicians. But it also seems to say something about just how hard it is to actually get rid. I mean, she's a weak prime minister, minority government, deeply unpopular, lost the confidence of many in her own party. And yet this coup just fizzled out. I mean, people say it partly fizzled out because there wasn't a plausible replacement. It's, you know, someone said, if, if at this moment of national crisis, the Conservative Party's answer is David Livington, we might as well just throw in the towel. That may be unfair, I don't know. When we, we learned something about her, but have we learned something about the Office of Prime Minister? That actually, it's, it's really hard to prize people out. It was pretty hard to prize Gordon Brown out. It's pretty hard, actually, generally, I think. I think that's what's so remarkable about our system. And not just a failed coup, which I had a very similar experience on Saturday night myself and got the kids in and said, this might be the moment, you know, you've got this is a moment in history. And of course, by the morning, they said, what are you talking about? You know, but the, the, the failed confidence vote in her before Christmas and the Tory party rules that say you can't have another one for a year has actually given her a sort of armour plate protection against everything that's thrown at her. That combined with a personality which suggests that she can absorb all of this. Now whether she's being totally protected from all of this by the people around her or whether she is just quite extraordinary in her resilience. Another factor is I wonder how much anyone else really wants it now. Um, They'll want it later I think, no doubt, but becoming Prime Minister now or in the circumstances where Brexit has not been not talking about the future relationship, but just leaving under the current circumstances has not been achieved, the risk is enormous that you would end up with the same task that she has and your legacy would be then almost immediately one of dramatic failure or whatever. So I think there's a waiting around until she's gone through the most difficult part and then I think people will want to take it up. So I think 
certainly there's no doubt with the withdrawal agreement passes, you'll then have a whole bunch of people lining up who think that they can do a better job negotiating, you know, the new relationship. But right now, I think part of it is her staying power, part of it is procedural, and part of it is I think there's many people who might like it later, but they don't want it now. I think if you look at our, you know, post-war history, it suggests it's actually relatively straightforward. So there's a loss of confidence in the cabinet to prize prime ministers out of office. I mean, both of our longest-serving post-war prime ministers, you've got this right, Thatcher and Blair, were forced out of power from coups within their own party. And in Thatcher's case, it happened, you know, pretty suddenly. So I think that the reason why that is possible within our system is is because everything depends on being, maintaining majority support in parliament of your party. If you don't have that, you can't govern. So I think the underestimated explanation of Theresa May's resilience is, is in introducing the Fixed Term Parliament Act, we changed something fundamental about the way in which our constitutional politics worked. And so it's quite difficult in that sense to disentangle what's Brexit, what's Theresa May's personality from the fact that we are now living fundamentally with a different kind of constitutional arrangement than what we previously had. It's also true in the Thatcher and Blair case. So in the Blair case, there was one candidate around whom the party could mm. coalesce. And in the Thatcher case, though, Heseltine would have been a very divisive figure. It wasn't hard to think of people who could be, and it turned out to be John Major, mm. could have been Douglas Hurd, around whom the party could coalesce. To go back to what Catherine said earlier, the divisions are so deep now. So it has to be someone that no one's ever heard of. You know, yeah. The only person we could coalesce around is David Lidington because not only does the public not know who he is, yeah. it's not clear that you know, many of the people who work with him know really what he stands for. That's not going to cut it. And of course, what we haven't mentioned in this context is the opposition. You know, If there was a very strong opposition with a charismatic leader that commanded widespread respect as opposed to being a very divisive leader that commands huge respect from parts of his party but much less from other parts. And from the public he has lower approval ratings than Theresa exactly. May they, but they both have historically low ratings but his are still lower than hers. And which is extraordinary given that normally you you know local council election time you really hammer the present incumbent because it's a way of you know giving the government a good kicking and yet he's still uh, has low approval ratings. So again, it may well be that because the opposition isn't seen as such a threat, it's another reason for her staying. As always, there is further reading available at the LRB. That's at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. We also do produce really excellent show notes for each episode, which will give you all the links that you need. And those are available wherever you get your podcasts. You just need to click on the further description. Join us in our usual slot next week when we will be talking about America and Donald Trump. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Kind of true. Yeah, that's the legally rustling of papers. I feel bad. I don't have any papers. Yeah. Well, we're in the presence of an actual lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Are you professor of European law? EU law. EU law.